And we go a little something like this. Hit it. Welcome to Keeping It Real with Dina. You can now find us in the new and noteworthy section of iTunes under podcast. We fancy y'all. And now here's your host, Dina Babel. Welcome to Keeping It Real with Dina. I am your rusty host. Um, I've been on book tour for the last, God, six or eight weeks and not in studio for a quiet minute. And um, I'm feeling a little rusty. But anyway, today I did a super cool podcast um, that I wanted to tell Clint about. It's called Soul Feed, and it was with Mr. Alex Kipp, really cool guy. And we talked about all things fatherless and healing, and the guy's got phenomenal energy. So I just wanted to tell y'all all about him. You can check him out on his podcast, Soul Feed. So I'm your host, Dina Babel. I'm an author, a motivational speaker, life coach, medical expert, mother, wife, and I'm a little bit addicted to Chick-fil-A milkshakes right now, so I'm trying to take a little sabbatical, although I had one yesterday. Um, you can find our podcast on iTunes under Keeping It Real with Dina. If you like what you hear, subscribe and give us a review. My book, The Fatherless Daughter Project, Understanding Our Losses and Reclaiming Our Lives, came out June 7th. We're available on Amazon and everywhere else books are sold. Coming up. On my announcements, I have an online course. We're calling it How to Take the Dysfunction Learned in Childhood Out of Your Adult Relationships in Order to Get the Love You Are Meant to Receive. Um, the next thing we have is the Fatherless Daughter Masterclass, Project 1, October 14th through 16th here in Atlanta. You can go to dinababel.com, D-E-N-N-A-B-A-B-U-L.com, or either fatherlessdaughterproject.com for more information. We're going to have all the logistics up soon. Right now, you can just fill out a little uh, form and say you're interested, and then we'll email you all the specifics. Um, so we were talking about fatherlessness today, and y'all know that's my hot subject here on Keeping It Real with Dina. And we met a delightful girl. Her name is Melissa Roshan. She goes by Mel Rowe. Um, uh, but because she was the daughter of the month for us, one of our featured daughters, and um got to know her and have kind of watched her on social media and everything. And so we asked her to be our guest today. Melro, we're so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be with you guys. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. You know, we're all about helping each other out. So this is, you know, a big tribe, a sisterhood, if you will. And when you're out here doing something that's your purpose, that's my favorite people to talk to, obviously. So I think with you, Melro, we talked a little bit. Let's let's just kind of go back from the beginning and just get to know you and your story. So let's just start with your childhood and, you know, tell us about your parents and kind of what you were born into and, and um, where you came from. Absolutely. I I sometimes feel when I start my story that it's almost as if I'm describing um, just me coming into the world like I came into with this great deficit. Um, and I feel that way because of just the way that it happened. Um, so I guess I, I guess I'd like to start off and say that I, I just came into this world with this deficit and it was just kind of like when everyone started at go, I almost felt like I was about five, five steps behind, mm-hmm. but my mother, as uh, she was living in Chicago at the time, and she was uh, at the time that I was born, she was 13 and a half years old, and a man pulled her into an alleyway and uh, raped her. 
and that resulted in my conception. And so she was unable to raise me, um, partly due to her age. And the other piece of it was that um, I represented trauma for her. So holding this new baby, it just, you know, it was a constant reminder of the trauma that she'd gone through. So So I was then... So she, I'm sorry, she kept you initially. Were you with her right after you were born or did she? I was with her until I was nine months old, yes. Okay. So again, just that deficit because she's living in foster care, she's living in poverty, and here I am, this brand new baby, and it's like, hi, welcome world or not welcome. So she um, she was 13 years old. 13 and a half. 13 and a half. She was already in foster care herself. She was. What was the deal with her parents? How did she end up in foster I mean, care? She just was abused by my maternal grandmother okay. and then uh, placed into the foster care system. And she never met her father and uh, just a broken little girl yeah. who, uh, who became a mother to a baby. So I was placed with family members and um, I experienced family abuse and was subsequently placed into the foster care system myself. So at nine months, you went to live with who? I went to live with family members. Okay. And then mm-hmm. how long were you with those family members? Um, I was with various family members from the time I was in my, you know, nine months until uh, about eight, eight and a half, nine years old. And then I was placed into the foster care system and just kind of got lost in, in the system. I mean, one home turned, you know, in the three, three to 15 and. By the time I was 14 years old, I lived in 23 foster homes. And when I say that, people are like, oh, my God, 23, how does that happen? Well, in the the 90s, um, so let's see, this would have been around 1991. Mm -hmm. um, 91, yeah, 91. I mean, it was just the foster care system was very different than what it is now. Now there's just a lot more monitoring of children. But back then, it was just very easy for a little uh, black girl, biracial girl to just kind of get lost in the system and uh, without any real support. And that that was my life. So, Melrose, let's go back for a minute. Yeah. If, if you were with family members up till the age of eight or nine, what mm-hmm. was it that you were saying to yourself at that age? What was your self-talk at that age about your life? You know, um, I really cannot recall um, what my self-talk was before I went to the foster care system. Okay. Partly because I was so young, and the other piece of it was I feel like the foster care, my that whole experience just kind of... Um, Overshadowed. It really, really did. I, I do remember feeling hopeful that I would one day have a forever family. Mm -hmm. That is a thought that I constantly had. And uh, when it, when it didn't happen, um, I, I I think one of the the things that I was saying to myself, well, I know one of the things I was saying to myself is that what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why do I not have, why am I not worth someone taking care of me and keeping me? Why do people keep hurting me? what's wrong with me so I guess you could say that would be would have been the the things I was saying to myself yeah because I think self-worth self-love you know all of it goes back to when we come from trauma am I worthy enough and you know is is am I lovable and I, I ask you that because I think it's interesting 
you know, we had we've had a couple of people in talking about different forms of foster care. And back then, you know, you hear different stuff, you know, if you watch Dateline or something else and you don't you hear a lot of people in the older system of foster care talk about that with how did that go? Did they come in and say, okay, we're placing you here? And then was there a certain time frame that they had to keep you or was there a period where you're like, okay, I'm going to try my best or or how did the time frames go? So they kind of varied. I I stayed in one home for a week and stayed in another home for two months and another home for a year and then just went to various group homes and shelters. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, is that some foster parents um, maybe they get burnt out. Um, maybe they're just a, a, a um, they're just a holding place for mm-hmm. you, and, and they're not looking for long term foster children. Maybe there's just not a fit between the chi- the foster child or the foster parent. Um, there there's going to just be a multitude of reasons. For me, um, I started to behave badly because a byproduct of the trauma that I'd gone through, I started to act out. And it wasn't easy for a lot of foster parents to really deal with that. How did that look, Melrose? Like act out? What was that like? Well, I mean, we see the children that we quote unquote call bad. And those children could be back talkers. Those children could be uh, very mischievous. I mean, I was a very sweet child, but I was withdrawn. Um, I was very angry in school, wasn't doing well in school, wasn't listening um, things like that, and some foster parents just felt like it was just too much for them to handle. And I know to some of your listeners, they might be thinking, well, that's just normal preteen, teenage stuff, and it is. But um, for some people, especially if they're not, if you're not their blood relative, then there is no real incentive to just kind of stick it out and love this child through their journey. Uh, the other piece of it is is that I was suffering, at the time I didn't know it, but I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, and that certainly makes a child who's gone through just this heavy amount of trauma makes them more withdrawn, um, just uh, suffering from behavioral problems, mental health issues. Well, it stunts mm-hmm. you emotionally. You know, wherever the trauma is, is where you get stunted. And so, Absolutely. you know, if you're continuously getting traumatized, there's only so much growing you can do because you're just in survival mode at that point. Um, so let me ask you this. What was, was there any, do you have any good memories from the foster care system? Um, I don't. You I don't? don't have any good memories from the foster care system, but I'm able to talk about it and not feel like it's waking up any type of trauma. I'm able to talk about it from a place of peace. And I'm able to do that because I realized that those, those, the things that happened to me while I was in the system, I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm grateful, but I am going to say that I understand it was part of my life journey and my path. And it has um, really, really uh, pushed me into the work that I do now, which is um, advocacy work and helping people overcome their trauma. So, Yeah, I definitely want to get into that, but I want to talk right now when we're in the childhood phase of a girl or a family that's out there that are either thinking about becoming foster parents or maybe a girl that is not completely grown. She might be college age 
or younger that has been through foster care. First, if we were talking to someone that was going to foster a child, what advice would you give them? Gosh, um, well, first of all, I would say kudos to you because it's not easy. I would say thank you very much because currently there are over 420,000 homeless foster kids are, uh, that are in the system that need forever families. So I would say thank you for just even considering doing, uh, doing that or extending yourself that way. Um, my advice would be to cling to support because Having a child in your home that's not your own, that could be there for two weeks, could be there for two years, that alone is scary because of the attachment that's made. And the other piece of it is, is that these children, they're coming to you with a whole, a whole host of issues. And without support, I don't feel like you'd be able to make it, um, even for your own sanity. And a lot of agencies that that go out and recruit foster parents, they are actually empowering foster parents with knowledge, with support already. But I feel like outside of the agency, if foster parents could um, just really research post-traumatic stress disorder, abandonment, neglect, and those different things, that would be able to help them connect to their foster children and also just being able to connect to other foster parents and kind of vent and For a empower one group. another. Yeah, yeah. because For I sure. think, yeah, I think what happens, too, is, you know, I'm thinking about it just like in, you know, running a company or anything where you have all these people come in and out and you're trying to develop certain types of people. And you're like, I see potential here, but I'm exhausted because these other people I'm having to, you know, put a lot of attention into. And so I think that knowing as a foster parent, knowing what you're capable of, what you can do. And is there any information out there that helps them kind of say, this is the type of people I work really well with, or these are, or maybe I need a break for a little while before I I bring another child into my home? You know, I'm sure that there are. Off the top of my head, I am not really certain um, what resources they could look into. But what what I will say is that there is a very large foster community online, and I feel like um, good old Google, right, is mm-hmm. just like the internet god, if you will. You just type in your question, and a whole just series of answers pop up for you. And I, I just kind of feel like if you are putting out that you are needing something, yeah. it'll come to you. Yeah. So how about if you, which I'm sure you've done this in your work, and we'll get to it. How about if you knew a girl that was in a place right now, um, you know, still emotionally and physically developing and spiritually that was in the foster care system and she's feeling alone and abandoned and unworthy? What would you say to her? Oh, gosh, I would say that um, I would say that there is life after there, there is more life to live than where you are now. And that the things that have happened to you, you could also look at it as that they happened for you because when you get to the other side with very real work, work, sometimes it bursts out purpose. Sometimes mm-hmm. it creates um, more empathy. Um, and oftentimes it even just helps others heal. And some girls, you know, they may be saying, well, I don't want to help others heal. I just don't want to hurt now. Yeah, and they I, don't, well, they I don't was, have the space for it. Yeah, I, I was that girl 
But if I would have had someone to say, hey, Mel, you know what? There, his life after, after the, there, there's more, there's more life for you to live than where you are now. And one day things will be better. And one day things will turn around for the greater good. It would have encouraged me. I may have not fully understood that and even maybe even believed it, but just hearing it, I'm sure it would have given me some type of hope. Um, I would also say, to the little girl that's been neglected or abandoned or mistreated. I think that's part of our magic because it just creates, I feel that it just creates a whole different type of empathy within us. Absolutely. And I feel that there are so many women out here that can relate to that. And there's a, because of that type of tribe and that type of sisterhood, there's just a level of awareness and understanding that we have from, for humans and for one another. Well, I also um, think that trauma. I think when you're younger, you want to be normal because normal seems normal. And then you get a little bit older and you're like, you know what? If I haven't been through anything and I hadn't grown and I hadn't evolved, you're not that interesting. Right. So you're over here struggling. And I think the girls that I can speak for myself that struggled very early in life, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of positive qualities that came, you know, leadership, friendship, loyalty, the chance to really dust off the stuff that's not a big deal that could knock someone completely out. I can bounce right back from what Mm. what positive coping mechanisms do you think? derive from that time in your life what do you think was starting to seed and come into um, place later in life from the episodes that you were going through during your childhood um i don't understand the question the question being what positive um attributes or coping mechanisms do you think came from such a tumultuous childhood I don't have an answer right now. Oh, I can answer it for you, girl. (laughs) I mean, I've talked to you many a times. You're doing major advocacy work. You've learned inner beauty, and obviously you're beautiful on the outside. But what is your message right now? What do you feel like you've developed into your message through all this? Absolutely. Um, And thank you for for that. Sometimes I'm kind of thrown for a loop. Um, when I'm when I'm asked specific que- certain questions, yeah. and I think that that's actually a good thing because it stretches me, and it, um, and it allows me and encourages me to reflect. And it's like, oh, you may not have the answer right now, but that's something you could think about. Let's, um, my let's stay right there for one second. That's yeah. really beautiful. Okay, because a lot of people are scared to get quiet or say, I don't know. And I Mm -hmm. think that's such a beautiful space that you're holding for yourself. And you're like, you know, let me think about that for a second. Because we're all still growing. So you're not supposed to go, bam, bam, bam. I got it. I got it. I got it. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I think I shared with you. I think I told you this. Or I might have told Alex this today on the podcast. When Mm -hmm. I was doing a big interview for Fox and we were about to go on live, they asked me a very poignant question. I, you know, I had a list of what I thought my questions were going to be. And then they asked me a specific question during the interview that I was not prepared for. And mm. people think, well, you're telling your story about being fatherless. You know, you've, be, you've been able to tell this a million times. It just depends on the minute. 
It depends on what's going on in my life. And when I was sitting there as the expert voice for fatherless daughters live on television, my little inner child was having a tantrum, you know, like, help, help, help. I want to cry. I feel, you know, I want my daddy. I want, you know, someone Mm -hmm. to know this is hurting me and this is hard for me. So Mm -hmm. I thought it was really pretty the way you just said that and that you held that space for yourself. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I am just, I try to be the queen of being authentic and being transparent and real. Um, I don't have it all together. I don't feel like anyone has ever fully arrived. And I feel like um, our answers can kind of change as we change. Absolutely. So that, yeah. So thank you for helping me grow and helping me reflect. And that's something, that's a question that I'll have to kind of go back and and sit with and meditate on. But for now, I will say that um, to answer your question in part, my main message um, is that really I feel like the things that, so, so let me back up. So I am a professional model now, and I think it's very, I think God has a sense of humor because here I was, someone that was born into this just this deep ugliness and then I was able to model Mm -hmm. so it's a stark contrast from what was going on in my life and I find that just very interesting and in 2011 I suffered this nervous breakdown I got to a space in my life where I just I couldn't take anymore I'd gone through so much and here I was had been on seven magazine covers but felt so ugly. I felt so ugly because of what was on the inside. Mm -hmm. Everyone else around me said, oh, you know, Mel is gorgeous. She's got all these beautiful photos. And I did see value in those photos. I just didn't see value in my life Mm -hmm. because it was such an ugly life. And it was that breakdown that really just allowed me to break through and understand that beauty has nothing to do with an aesthetic quality. It doesn't. It just does not. Because you can be the most beautiful person on this planet and feel so ugly on the inside and then act so ugly, and which therefore makes you ugly. Right. And so I had to really try to understand from that breakdown, okay, if my aesthetic beauty, if I'm not able to see it, like I, I mean, I, I hear what people say and yes, I find value in my photos, but if I'm actually not feeling beautiful, then what needs to happen? So I laid in this hospital bed in a psych ward. And How did you get there? Well, I tried to commit suicide. Okay. Uh, I I tried to actually uh, jump off of a reservoir bridge um, and take my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, luckily that did not happen. And I was transported by the police to the psych ward. And when I was laying there, I just began to just pray. Mm. And just cry out and, and ask God to really show me what, what, why did I feel so ugly? Help me to feel beautiful. Help me to be beautiful. Help me to understand my worth because I don't feel like I'm worthy at all. And it was about a three-year process of reflecting, of um, going to therapy, of emptying out people in my life that were toxic, and also of forgiving and not just forgiving myself because um, I get a little irritated when people say, oh, you have to forgive yourself. Well, when someone's gone through trauma, 
it's probably the wrong thing you want to say to them because they didn't. You got to salute yourself. I mean, I mean, girl, like you made it through. I you can't forgive something you didn't know and that was not done to you. You can let go and try to ease it, but no, I totally get it. And let me tell you, Melro, mm-hmm. this is why I do this work. This right here is why I come here at night after I've worked all day and my kids are at home and you know, I got seventeen billion things going on on social media and this course and this retreat and I uh, have these edits due and all these things that happen in life, right? I do it yes. for what you just told. You know, you're being so vulnerable, so authentic and every one of these messages get out, and you're going to talk and help some girl, plenty. But there's going to be somebody listening to this that goes, oh, my God, I'm there. I'm thinking about going there. Or I feel like, you know, maybe next week if things aren't better, I'll take those pills. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think suicide is something that, you know, deserves plenty of conversation. But I will say, as a medical expert, and I've said this before on the show, if you have suicidal ideations and it's something that is in your realm of thinking or someone you know, the way to know if it's serious and if it's something that they are going to do is a lot of times these people make plans, right? So I'm sure when you were leading up to, okay, I'll go to the bridge, you started to develop a plan. If you love someone, and we're going to get into this on the next podcast, Melro, because this is deep, and I don't want to shortchange us. But if you you know someone or yourself has made a plan, as in, I'll give this person my, you know, necklace, I'll do this, or I'll show them this way, or I'm going to take these pills and I'm going to do it after my sister's wedding, or you make a specific plan based on a timeline, then you're in trouble. And if Mm -hmm. that has happened to you and that's something that you've considered, you need to go get the help that you need. It's very important. Um, And we're going to get more into this. We're already up with our first episode. Can you believe how fast this goes, Melro? It was was an amazing, um, amazing show. I, I can't believe how fast it went. Oh, my God. It's like, get me on Super Soul Sunday. I got a lot to talk about. But uh, we're going to pick back up where we started. Um, For now, we're going to talk about the real boss of the week. Is Miss Melissa Roshan for finding inner and outer beauty all on her own? Oh my God, girl, we have so much to talk about. I cannot wait to get to the next episode. Thank you so much for being here and being here. Just really giving it, girl, because this is what we need. This is how we learn and this is how we grow. Thanks for listening. Come on.